most of your high net wealth donors are going to want to have that intellectual conversation with the leadership to see that this is a strategic and long-term campaign that will be successful and steward their money in a way that they'd want to have it steward. Inform, inspire, and evolve. Welcome to Creating Community for Good, a podcast dedicated to philanthropy, the love of humankind. Join host Lindsay Simons in a friendly conversation about contributing to good as we bring together community, positivity, and energy to the business of generosity. Welcome your host, Lindsay Simons. Hi, this is Lindsay Simons, your host of the Creating Community for Good podcast. Today, I'm flipping the script. Instead of interviewing a guest, I've been interviewed by a colleague in the space named Mary Highland on her show, Inspired Nonprofit Leadership. As a fundraising consultant for over a decade, clients under my management have raised over $1 billion cumulatively. I've set up and run campaigns ranging from $500,000 to $500 million. I've worked with clients ranging from the academic medical centers to healthcare and research, early education, special education, after-school programs, environment, religion, and social services. Some of my organizations that I've served are UCSF Medical Center in San Francisco, California, Peconic Bay Medical Center back east, City of Hope, March of Dimes nationally, BUILD, Project Reckless, and the Scandinavian School and Cultural Center. Capital campaigns are my professional superpower. Today, you'll hear Mary ask me about the ins and outs of optimizing extraordinary fundraising efforts via campaigns. Some of the key takeaways will include capital campaigns and the four pillars to know when you're ready to get going, working slowly and strategically with few individuals to secure big gifts, and what is a feasibility study and why is it so important to have one done with a third party instead of going in-house. If you're interested in exploring professional counsel for a feasibility study, capital campaign, or fundraising strategic counsel, send me an email for a free consultation at info at lindsaysimonsconsulting.com. Welcome to Creating Community for Good, a podcast dedicated to philanthropy, the love of humankind. With this intention to inform, inspire, and evolve, let's go. My guest today is Lindsay Simons. Lindsay is a senior nonprofit fundraising and management professional with over a decade of experience partnering with organizations for transformational change. Having raised over $1 billion, yes, that is billion with a B, cumulatively, she serves nonprofit clients ranging from startups to multi-billion dollar budgets locally and nationally. Her sector focus areas are healthcare, education, arts, and social justice. Lindsay plays an integral role in expanding and deepening donor relationships, philanthropic strategies, and development operations. With a rich career and diverse portfolio of experiences and expertise, she's a solution-based thinker and conscious communicator. With an eye for major gift strategy, structures of influence, community engagement, project management, compelling storytelling, and brand evangelism, Lindsay brings her clients comprehensive fundraising knowledge. Lindsay founded Lindsay Simons Consulting in 2017 after her role as vice president for nearly a decade at CCS. 
CCS is a leading global fundraising, consulting, and management firm. Lindsay's passionate about having more impact in the nonprofit sector. Welcome, Lindsay. It is a pleasure to have you here today to share your wisdom and experience with our listeners. You are so kind, Mary. Thank you for having me. I'm absolutely delighted well, about this podcast. We're going to have a fun time talking. So we're going to talk mostly today, but who knows where the conversation will go about capital campaigns. And so uh, I would really like your take on the basics here first. What is a capital campaign? Sure. So a capital campaign is not just a campaign to raise money for buildings. Typically, when people hear capital campaign, they think that it's an organization like a school, a hospital, or any kind of community center that's actually building more space or another another right, hall. Right. It's also building endowments or anything that's a really major and intense fundraising endeavor that has a start, middle, and end. Okay. So... How do you know that you're ready to think about a capital campaign? I know that I have been in front of boards and they've said, oh, well, we'll just do it. And I'm not a fundraiser first, but, you know, just talking about governance and they'll say, well, we'll do a capital campaign. And my first question is, well, do you have any major donors? And they don't even have major donors. And it's like, I don't think that yeah. you're ready. But other than that, I don't really know what the criteria for readiness would be. So what can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, I will rest on four pillars that are the guiding principles of knowing that you're ready for a campaign. And it, as you said, it's donors. So do you have the potential prospective donors? Do you have the leadership in place that would guide the campaign that would inspire others to give, that are level-headed, and that are respected in the community? Do you have a strong case for support? You must have a clear and defined reason for the funds and uh, you know, knowing where they're going to go, how much you need, and exactly uh, for what period of time. And then finally, it's your plan. So it's that start, middle, and end I mentioned earlier. What is the launch? What, it, what are the key performance indicators or the KPIs? What are the uh, major benchmarks? When do you go from perhaps a silent phase to a public phase, which is very common? So it's really understanding what the plan is, what the tools are. So those are the four. It's the case for support, the leadership, the prospective donors, and the plan. So and if those are in place, then you can talk about a campaign. Then you can. Okay, but let's go a little deeper on some of these if you're okay with that, because um, let's talk about donors. You know, you've dealt with a lot of very large campaigns, obviously. But, you know, if you're talking about a, a nonprofit that's growing up, you know, when do they get to the point where they could begin to think about this in terms of the scope of the donors they have, maybe the amount of money they're raising annually from individuals? I'm assuming we're not talking about uh Grants and foundation grants, although I assume you can, I mean, I've been involved with Rotary where we were recruiting for a special project and we not even, we, we had individual donors, but we also got matching money. But that's, let's put that aside for now and just talk about, you know, I'm running a nonprofit profit 
I have some major donors. What am I thinking about in terms of sort of a level of giving that I need to have? So what you want to think about is, are those donors very loyal to you? Do you have a strong relationship with with them? And did they put you as one of their top philanthropic priorities? Because if you've got a donor who's giving, let's say, $100 million every year, very, very high net wealth individual, and you're getting a million dollars, you might think, wow, we've got a million dollar donor. We've got a seven figure donor. This person is in our back pocket. We're going to be able to go out and raise $50 million for sure. This person's going to help us. And then we've got a few other donors too that give us five figures or six figures. That's sort of a skewed way of thinking because perhaps that $100 million donor sees you as one of the lowest priorities on her list, right? And so she is maybe giving $25, 50 dollars to her other priority charities. And then yours is at the lowest. Perhaps there's a nice friendship there. And so the point is to say, Although we're talking about big money in that example, it's all relative. I could have made that same example with a donor who gives $10,000. The idea that I'm trying to convey is it's important to know where you stand in the priorities of your major donors. You don't need to be the top of every one of your donors' priorities, but you do need to have a few very specific few who are your leadership donors who would support you. So it's looking at that pyramid of giving Mm-hmm. And knowing that you've got to have a small percentage that has very high capacity, high affinity, and you have a strong access or relationship to them. So that's the golden triangle that you're looking okay. for. Affinity, access, and ability. Okay. So that's important in looking at your list. Let's say you want, um, let's ratchet this down a bit. Um, okay. Let's say you want to raise... $3 million. Okay. Um, say that's your target. And I'm just pulling that out of the air, listeners. Um, I don't have an experience in mind with that. And say you have never done a capital campaign. If we back this up a little bit, then how much money First, should a nonprofit have been raising, and maybe this isn't a criteria at all, but I would think you would look at that if you came in and said, well, you're not even raising this, you know, if you're going to raise $3 million, let's let's work on your annual campaign or whatever you're doing. Does that make any sense? I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. it's important that you have a baseline of funds coming in regularly, and then What we usually say as an adage, but it needs to be judged case by case, is that you can raise three, maybe five times your ordinary operating budget if you want to do a very major, very specific uh, capital campaign and you have the prospects in your pipeline that have the means to do that. Now, is that based on an operating budget that's all contributions? Yes, not earned revenue. But okay, or government in, in, in revenue, terms. because I'm thinking, you know, I right. I had a, you know, 20 plus million dollar nonprofit, but we were only raising $350,000 a year, the rest of it was all government. So we would not be raising three to five times that at all. So right. Okay. If you want to be thinking about what can you ask somebody to do is right. how you really do the math. So if you've got folks who are giving 100,000 every year, then you might want to, you could ask them for 300. You could ask them for 500. I also always encouraged pledged giving in capital campaigns, which helps you to 
stretch what your donor is giving. Right. Uh, but nevertheless, you really want to consider your audience and know that you can't you can't just shoot for you know a ten x or twenty x campaign if you haven't had any relationship or or um, you know culture of philanthropy that's been cultivated over time with individuals high, with high net net wealth. Right. So just to kind of recap, is you've got to have ongoing relationships. You're going to hopefully target getting three to five times, but you have to have that core group that's been giving. Now, when we talk about the leadership group or the steering committee, whatever you call it, Mm -hmm. what are the criteria for that? Do your, all your top donors who you see giving, are they the ones that belong on that? Who belongs on that? And how many people should that be? And again, let's think about a moderately sized nonprofit or even large, but you know, we're certainly not talking about people that are going to expect to get billions here. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, um, I'm working with a campaign right now that's hoping to raise less than 10 million. I won't give away all the information, okay, but sure. the idea is that it's a modest amount, but it's nothing to sneeze at. Uh, the best number for major gifts, uh, or I should say for campaign executive council, steering council, is seven to 20 individuals. I think 20 is a little high even. My preference is between seven and 15 individuals okay. that are really digging in deeply. You've got hopefully two co-chairs in there. So that they can spread the work, but there's a leadership uh, team that's a volunteer-oriented team. So it's peer-to-peer counsel and peer-to-peer solicitations. On that committee, you want to be recruiting folks who are able to give at the major gift level. Okay. You want to recruit folks who are connected to the community and willing to open doors. They are willing to make introductions. They're willing to host events. And they are willing to dig in and commit anywhere from one to five hours a week for a period of time. And that could be six months at a time, wow. could be two years at a time. But you can segment your plan to have different phases of volunteers activated at different periods of time. So you don't get donor and a volunteer fatigue. But uh, that's what you're looking at for the job description. It's, it's a serious volunteer job. It's a leadership job. And um, it's something to be taken seriously. What's the minimum you think if some if a nonprofit is doing their very first campaign, and maybe you have a story about this, of uh, their very first campaign, putting this together, given the duration, um, and, and I know there's the silent and then the public phases, but mm-hmm. can you, you maybe break that down a little for us? How many people do you need to start to help you then say, okay, you're the core Now, maybe job one is let's recruit more or, you know, how does that look in terms of a plan for? uh, I think you want to start with um, five to seven people minimum. Okay. And then start recruiting and you can have your campaign executive committee, which is really those who are digging in and contributing quite a bit of time and money. That's the group that I just mentioned that could be seven to 12 people, ideally, And then you can have a whole another layer of volunteers that are just connected to each phase. So if you have a um, school, as an example, then you might have a phase that's committed to the current school families. And then it might go into alumni. 
might go into grandparents. It might go into okay. the, the, if it's a K through 12 school, then it's maybe the pre-K or the K through five. And then maybe it's the middle school and then maybe it's the high school. So you're going to segment your groups of engagement depending on how many people you have in your ecosystem. And that's how you can activate your volunteers for periods of time without spreading them too thin for the entire duration of the campaign, unless they're on that executive committee, in which case they're hopefully going to stick with you for that long haul. For the entire time. So how does this planning happen? I mean, and what kind of staff support does a nonprofit need to have before they even put this volunteer leadership council in place? That's a million dollar question. So (laughs) it depends on the size of the organization, what they already have, what kind of talent skill sets they already have, and then how much they're trying to raise. Because if it is a relatively... um, it's something above and beyond their operating costs. Right. They're wanting to do a capital campaign. It's a bigger lift. They're not going to rob Peter to pay Paul. They need to have their operating funds continue. So if you've got fundraising staff, they need to continue to do what they're doing already to maintain the ship, if you will. And then you need to add supplemental support, which is where your volunteers come in. And that's also where you could potentially hire somebody new. That's why capital campaigns are often guided by consultants is that it's sort of a job that you come in, you get it set up, and then you set them up for success and leave. It's more like a temporary or an interim leadership position that a lot of consultants will take on so that you don't necessarily need to go through the process of hiring. And then what do you do after the campaign? Do you fire them or do you find a new job for them? And how do you manage that? That's how the ecosystem works with consultants and capital campaigns. That said, you should probably have somebody who's dedicating their full-time job. And if, they, if you can't get somebody full-time, then at least half of their time should be going to the campaign because there's a lot of administration and operations that happens behind the scene, not to mention managing volunteers because these folks are... They're not necessarily experts in fundraising. They're there to lend their name, their connections, their service but they are not necessarily there to go and do the data entry or the research or the scripts okay. or the case for support. So you need to have somebody who can be on the back end supporting the whole team. Okay. Team so it volunteer. sounds like you need a range of, you need the professional to help you set it up, but you need a range of support staff working with that professional and your volunteers. It sounds like you need to have That's that. That's right. Yeah, there's it's two pronged. Yeah, you need a role somebody who's doing database management and entry. They're going to be there will be a, an influx of pledges, and so somebody's got to set that up. Make sure that there are pledge reminders, stewardship reports. It's another set of material that's got to go into database and then back out to the donor. And then yes, as you said, you need to have somebody who's really seeing at the bigger. Um, seeing the bigger perspective and thinking strategically, thinking operationally, not as much administratively. Okay. So as we think about the CEOs and the executive directors of these organizations, obviously they have more than full-time jobs like most nonprofit leaders do. How do they need to think about their role in this campaign and working with the consultant at the beginning. I mean, how does that role start? 
and how does it evolve over the campaign? The most successful campaigns are those where you've got a dedicated staff to guiding the campaign and you have your leadership 100% committed to supporting the campaign and that they list it as one of their top three priorities for their work over the next one to two years. So it means that they might have to put other initiatives to the side or delegate responsibilities and they should dive in deeply to this campaign because the head of any organization is the most sought after relationship that your high net wealth donors will have or Mm -hmm. will desire. So if you want to make a big ask of somebody that you've never done before, it's above and beyond what they've ever given, you want to bring in the biggest hitter. And that is the visionary. That's the leader. That's the conductor. It's whoever is truly the inspirational face and brain behind the organization. You also want to integrate your program staff so that your individual donor is feeling um, confident and that you are continuing to deliver the highest level of services and they believe in your mission and they feel that heart connection. But most of your high net wealth donors are going to want to have that intellectual conversation with the leadership to see that this is a strategic and long-term campaign that will be successful and steward their money in a way that they'd want to have it steward, essentially. Let's talk a little bit about these the silent phase and the public phase. What is the silent phase and uh, how do you think about that? And yeah. let's start with that one. Silent slash not so silent. You know, it's <laughs> funny because it's not, it's not totally secret, but the idea is that it's not advertised. So the silent phase is probably where you're talking to your top 20 to 50 donors over time. It might start with, five to 10, and then it grows incrementally by 10, bringing on 10 new prospective donors, maybe once a month. So it's working very slowly, very strategically with a very few number of individuals who are hopefully going to give you the highest amount so that you can secure big gifts early on to show support and to show the backing of influential donors. Then over time, usually we recommend you wait until you're close to 70 or 85% of your campaign goal has been reached from the quiet phase, right? So it's a lot lot than you think. Yeah, it takes a long time to get to that place um, unless you've got a few mega hitters. And then you would want to announce it so that what you're doing is speaking to the psychology of your community. So in the public phase, you don't want the goal to be so large that it seems like your gift would be a drop in the bucket. You want to make sure that you feel your donors who are able to give $100, $1,000, whatever it may be that's in that public phase, however you've segmented your list, you want those individual donors to still feel like they're playing a part and that their money is really making a difference. And ultimately, it tips over the campaign so you hit your goal and then some. Okay. Okay. So that's when you go public. That's a little bit later than I had imagined uh, it would be. So let's talk about the only one that I was not involved with deeply, but um, again, it was a, a Rotary Club 100th anniversary project. And we had a pretty large club, over 400 people and well connected in the community. And a lot of people thought that 
we would never reach that goal. And I was not, you know, one of those major donors or in that part of the conversation, but they did gather a few of us together to uh, be part of the hiring of a professional to do a feasibility study Mm -hmm. for us, because there were some people who said, no, 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 you'll never be able to raise this money. I think our... uh, 10, bringing on 10 new prospective donors, maybe once a month. So it's working very slowly, very strategically with a very few number of individuals who are hopefully going to give you the highest amount so that you can secure big gifts early on to show support and to show the backing of influential donors. Then over time, usually we recommend you wait until you're close to 70 or 85% of your campaign goal has been wow. reached from the quiet phase, right? That's so it's a, a lot. Long, yeah. You think. yeah it's, it takes a long time to get to that place um, unless you've got a few mega hitters. And then you would want to announce it so that what you're doing is speaking to the psychology of your community. So in the public phase, you don't want the goal to be so large that it seems like your gift would be a drop in the bucket. You want to make sure that you feel your donors who are able to give $100, $1,000, whatever it may be that's in that public phase, however you've segmented your list, you want those individual donors to still feel like they're playing a part and that their money is really making a difference. And ultimately, it tips over the campaign so you hit your goal and then some. Okay. Okay. So that's when you go public. That's a little bit later than I had imagined uh, it would be. So let's talk about the only one that I was not involved with deeply, but um, again, it was a a Rotary Club 100th anniversary project. And we had a pretty large club, over 400 people and well-connected in the community. And a lot of people thought that we would never reach that goal. And I was not, you know, one of those major donors or in that part of the conversation, but they did gather a few of us together to uh, be part of the hiring of a professional to do a feasibility study Mm -hmm. for us, because there were some people who said, no, 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 you'll never be able to raise this money. I think our, um, goal and what we knew we needed to have to even begin. We were doing an all-inclusive playground that we were going to build uh, Mm -hmm. or make sure got built. And I think it was like $6 million was what had to be raised. But anyway, beyond that story to go back and say, what the heck is a feasibility study? When would you do it? All, All that you can tell people about how to think about that. Sure. I love feasibility studies for many reasons. One, as a consultant who does feasibility studies, I love the chance to talk to the community and to get the sense for what they love about the organization. It's a time where your third party, usually you would do a feasibility study with a consultant, whereas a campaign, you can do that in-house. But a feasibility study is highly recommended that you would go outside in order to have a third-party perspective and a a neutral interviewer so that you can give that strategic advice back to the organization and the donor feels like they're able to speak freely without getting um, mixed into politics or drama. 
what you want to do is get the the clearest picture that you can about how your donors perceive the organization. That's the qualitative element of a feasibility study. And then the quantitative is understanding if we were to go forward, what element of this case for support that you would uh, prepare for the feasibility study is most compelling? Would you support it? And hypothetically, at what level? That's the hardest to pin down because you don't, you want to make sure that your consultant is not making solicitations for the feasibility study. Also, you want to encourage your consultant to get a number from your donor that will give you feedback on how much you can ask them for in the future. Oftentimes, donors are reluctant to say to a consultant by 10, bringing on 10 new prospective donors, maybe once a month. So it's working very slowly very strategically with a very few number of individuals who are hopefully going to give you the highest amount so that you can secure big gifts early on to show support and to show the backing of influential donors. Then over time, usually we recommend you wait until you're close to 70 or 85% of your campaign goal has been reached from the quiet phase. Right. So it's a lot. lot, You think, yeah, it's, It takes a long time to get to that place, um, unless you've got a few mega hitters. And then you would want to announce it so that what you're doing is speaking to the psychology of your community. So in the public phase, you don't want the goal to be so large that it seems like your gift would be a drop in the bucket. You want to make sure that you feel your donors who are able to give $100, $1,000, whatever it may be that's in that public phase, however you've segmented your list, you want those individual donors to still feel like they're playing a part and that their money is really making a difference. And ultimately, it tips over the campaign. So you hit your goal and then some. Okay. Okay. So that's when you go public. That's a little bit later than I had imagined uh, it would be. So let's talk about the only one that I was not involved with deeply, but um, again, it was a, a Rotary Club 100th anniversary project. And we had a pretty large club, over 400 people and well-connected in the community. And a lot of people thought that we would never reach that goal. And I was not, you know, one of those major donors or in that part of the conversation. But they did gather a few of us together to uh, be part of the hiring of a professional to do a feasibility study mm-hmm. for us, because there were some people who said, no, 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 you'll never be able to raise this money. I think our um, goal and what we knew we needed to have to even begin, we were doing an all-inclusive playground that we were going to build uh, mm-hmm. or make sure got built. And I think it was like $6 million was what had to be raised. But anyway, beyond that story, to go back and say, what the heck is a feasibility study? When would you do it? All all that you can tell people about how to think about that. Sure. I love feasibility studies for many reasons. One, as a consultant who does feasibility studies, I love the chance to talk to the community and to get the sense for what they love about the 
the organization. Okay. It's a time where your third party, usually you would do a feasibility study with a consultant, whereas a campaign, you can do that in-house. But a feasibility study is highly recommended that you would go outside in order to have a third party perspective and a, a neutral interviewer right. so that you can give that strategic advice back to the organization and the donor feels like they're able to speak freely okay. without getting um, mixed into politics or drama. What you want to do is get the, the clearest picture that you can about how your donors perceive the organization. That's the qualitative element of a feasibility study. And then the quantitative is understanding if we were to go forward, what element of this case for support that you would uh, prepare for the feasibility study is most compelling? Would you support it? And hypothetically, at what level? That's the hardest to pin down because you don't, you want to make sure that your consultant is not making solicitations for the feasibility study. Also, you want to encourage your consultant to get a number from your donor that will give you feedback on how much you can ask them for in the future. Okay. Oftentimes, donors are reluctant to say to a consultant, by 10, bringing on 10 new prospective donors, maybe once a month. So it's working very slowly, very strategically with a very few number of individuals who are hopefully going to give you the highest amount so that you can secure big gifts early on to show support and to show the backing of influential donors. Then over time, usually we recommend you wait until you're close to 70 or 85% of your campaign goal has been wow. reached from the quiet phase, right? That's so it's a, a lot. lot yeah. You think. yeah it's, it takes a long time to get to that place um, unless you've got a few mega hitters. And then you would want to announce it so that what you're doing is speaking to the psychology of your community. So in the public phase, you don't want the goal to be so large that it seems like your gift would be a drop in the bucket. Okay. You want to make sure that you feel your donors who are able to give $100, $1,000, whatever it may be that's in that public phase, however you've segmented your list, you want those individual donors to still feel like they're playing a part and that their money is really making a difference. And ultimately, it tips over the campaign. So you hit your goal, and then some. Okay, okay. So that's when you go public. That's a little bit later than I had imagined uh, it would be. So it, it, let's talk about the only one that I was not involved with deeply. But um, again, it was a, a Rotary Club 100th anniversary project. And we had a pretty large club, over 400 people and well-connected in the community. And a lot of people thought that we would never reach that goal. And I was not, you know, one of those major donors or in that part of the conversation. But they did gather a few of us together to uh, be part of the hiring of a professional to do a feasibility study for us, because there were some people who said, no, 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 you'll never be able to raise this money. I think our um, goal and what we knew we needed to have to even begin, we were doing an all-inclusive playground that we were going to build uh, mm -hmm. or make sure got built. And I think it was like $6 million was what had to be raised. But anyway, the 
beyond that story to go back and say, what the heck is a feasibility study? When would you do it? All, all that you can tell people about how to think about that. Sure. I love feasibility studies for many reasons. One, as a consultant who does feasibility studies, I love the chance to talk to the community and to get the sense for what they love about the the organization. It's a time where your third party, usually you would do a feasibility study with a consultant, whereas a campaign, you can do that in-house. But a feasibility study is highly recommended that you would go outside in order to have a third party perspective and a, a neutral interviewer 